It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So if you heard Monday's message, uh, then you could maybe be a little nervous about this one. Uh, That was a heavy-duty message, and uh, just appreciate you guys walking through that with me. I do feel like it was very, very significant and is significant in my life and for this generation to really face some of these things and to walk through them to a place of health and wholeness. Uh, This is a very different sort of message. It's... uh, it has a, a, a fun tone to it, so it is quite a shift from Monday. Uh, it's a, an actual story in history, and not a normal one, not one that probably most of you have ever heard before, even though it was a major event uh, in 1942. So it's interesting because in our timeline, we're going from 1914 to 1974, and I'm right in the late 1930s in our last episode, 1938, and it was the boxing uh, match, the famous fight between Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis. And if any of you know your, you know your dates in the calendar and you know 1938, 1939, that's the beginnings of World War II. So this is the rise of Hitler, the, you know, where he's beginning to take state claim to Europe. In 1939, he is going to take one step too many and he's going to invade Poland and that's going to finally awaken the allies. Of course, many of us could have said, why weren't we awakened long before that? But that's part of the drama. That's a different series. That's called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. And so even though it's going to feel a little awkward having me just sort of skip forward, it's like, uh, Eric, you do know that there are other things happening in the world right now? I do. I'm very aware of that. And so with this, I'm choosing to not just dive into World War I and World War II, which I have an entire series on. I, mean, I have a 93-part series on World War II. So I think it's okay if I fast forward through this. That's at least my thoughts, even though some of you are like, what? Robbed! So we're going to jump right to 1942, and that's, that's where we're at. But we're in the midst of the war, and the German... Uh, nuisance in Europe is quite extensive. The reality of the danger of Hitler is very high. We have been, uh, Pearl Harbor has been bombed. We are on red alert status as a nation. And all of this is happening right now. We're in a a hyper state of uh, awareness, watchfulness. And in World War I, we had a lot of invasion from German spies that were in our, uh, in our territories, blowing up bridges, blowing up factories. And we had no counter espionage abilities back then. We were new kids on the block when it came to international affairs, and we didn't really have an espionage system. So in World War II, we're going to sort of be exercising some of our espionage skills and our counter-espionage skills. And that's sort of where our story lands, is right in 1942 and with us trying to get our game on when it comes to those things. So this uh, episode is part 15. It's called The Secrets of Room 5235. Uh, See, if, if you've heard any of my other series, you know that there was a a room called Room 40 in Great Britain. It was their spy network. 
This is very different, but it's still a room name, and I'm always intrigued with room names. So room 5235, of course I could say room 5235, I don't know exactly, I've never heard anyone say it out loud, so I'm not sure if there's a better way to say it than another, but uh, the secrets of room 5235. Oh, I love secrets, aren't secrets fun? So room 5235, the room in which one man will become famous. Uh, let me share with you who that one man is. I don't know if that face looks familiar to you. I've stuck his face up on the screen a couple times during this series, but that's a man named J. Edgar Hoover. Many of us know his face from more of the older version because he is going to be in office for like 50 years uh, in a governmental position, unheard of. In all of American history, you know, usually like a president will be in the office for four years, right? Maybe eight. This guy's gonna be around for, I think, eight presidents. And he has to be appointed by presidents each time. And so the fact that he is going to be in position as the director of the FBI from 1924 to right about the time this series is gonna end. I mean, that's why originally I was thinking I should parallel this with uh, the FBI, and I almost did. I, it was spiritual lessons from the files of the FBI was one of my working titles. Uh, because they are such a huge part of the formation of this time period, for good or for bad. And so it's hard, because if you said, Eric, what are, you, what are your opinions about J. Edgar Hoover? They're definitely mixed. There are certain things about him that I'm like, huh, yeah, I'm glad he was there. And there's a lot of other things like, I wish he wasn't there. Uh, he is going to creates a system in our country known as the FBI that we are very familiar with that has far more power than it probably should because of this man. So this is more of a, a peek into what's going to happen in this story, sort of like a foreshadow, like you know how they can do that in the beginning of a movie where they show a scene but it's like three quarters of the way into the movie and then you go back to the beginning, yeah, sort of like that. So outside of room 5235's doors, Washington was abuzz with talk of a medal for Hoover, while the media rushed ahead to declare him a great hero on par with General Douglas MacArthur, commander of Allied forces in the South Pacific. Hats off enthusiastically to the FBI, one writer declared. What a splendid job J. Edgar Hoover's excellent counterespionage organization is doing. Another instructed his fellow citizens to thank God for the miraculous capacities of J John Edgar Hoover and his FBI army. So I have a lot of quotes from a book called G-Men, or G-Man, which is speaking about Hoover, uh, by a, a woman named Beverly Gage. So room 5235, the place where credit is often stolen. That's gonna be a key theme for me, is this idea of credit. And, uh, okay, I don't know that I should give much away, but I'll, I'll give a hint, sort of a foreshadow, and that is that Hoover is going to take full advantage of the secrecy of room 5235, and he is going to stake claim to some credit, which is going to make him one of the most powerful men in American history, and a lot of it starts in this room. The greatest American counter-espionage victory ever. So that's a, that's a huge statement, but you have to recognize we'd never had a counter-espionage. That, that means we had taken on the espionage network of another country, which like the Germans were known for their espionage network, but no one is known for their espionage network like the British. The British are the best. Of course, in history, that's the way. But the Germans would have never agreed to what I just said there. They would have said, no way, and they would have immediately uh, declared themselves to be better, right? Because that's very German. Uh, but the greatest American counter-espionage victory ever is what we're talking about right here in this story. 
Now this is up to that point, right? 1942, we never really had a victory before this. So in 1942, America proved that we can play with the big boys. So America is bursting buttons. Remember on Monday when my top button uh, opened? It's sort of like that. They're bursting buttons where they're so proud of what they're doing. And they want to give a medal to Hoover because Hoover did this for us. So we're going to start with some different characters. We're going to start with Coast Guardsman John Cullen. Probably a character that most people in American history have never heard of. In fact, I studied this whole story and his name never even came up. I had to do a deeper dive just to get the guy's name. And I did find a picture of him too, isn't that cool? So I have a picture of this guy and his name's John Cullen and he's actually an important player. So what I say here, the man who uncovered the threat. Yeah, there's a threat, a threat to American security. This guy is going to uncover it, yet we don't even know his name, never heard of him, don't know anything about him. It's gonna happen, Amagansett, Long Island, New York, June 13th, 1942, at a time of high alert in America. Beverly Gage says it this way, well before dawn on June 13th, 1942, an unarmed Coast Guard officer, and I'm gonna put his name in, because I found it, John Cullen, patrolling the beach along Amagansett, Long Island, noticed a man standing near the shore. The man was assisting two companions knee-deep in the water, wrestling with a rubber boat, it was a foggy night and visibility was low, so he called out to ask what they were doing. The man on shore replied that they were lost fishermen, coming ashore to wait for first light. He spoke perfect English, though with a slight accent, and seemed amiable enough, so the guardsman invited the men to sit out the night at the nearby Coast Guard station. Before they could settle on a plan, however, one of the man's companions began to speak in German, and the man clapped a hand over his companion's mouth. Once the German words had been spoken, the man's attitude changed. He said he did not have a fishing license and therefore wanted to stay away from the authorities. Then he pulled out a wad of bills and thrust $260 into the guardsman's hands. That's a lot of money back then. The man told him to take it and keep quiet, otherwise he and his companions would be compelled to kill him at once. A military intelligence report later noted. The shocked guardsman mumbled his assent and began to back away from the group, afraid of being shot in the back. When he was a few hundred yards away, he turned around and ran back to the Coast Guard station where he reported that a team of German agents was attempting to invade the United States of America. Oh no! It's like the start of a movie, can't you guys feel it? So Beverly Gage continues, even at the Coast Guard, tasked with patrolling the nation's shores for signs of an invasion and sabotage, this breathless report occasioned some skepticism. They weren't really buying it from John Cullen. He's like, I don't know if this guy wasn't a very believable character or what, but it's like he seemed a little erratic, a little uh, crazy. But when the guardsman showed off his crumpled bills, insisting that he had been forced to grab them and run, the rest of the station jumped into action. They raced back to the beach where the fog still hung thick, obscuring any hope of any up-close sighting. At first light, the guardsmen noticed some sand that had been disturbed near the dunes. When they began to dig down, they found three cases of TNT, that's dynamite, with holes bored in the TNT blocks for fuses. fuses. I'm not sure why it says fuses twice. Sorry about that, I, I, I don't know. Detonators, incendiary pens and pencils, plus a duffel bag which contained German seamen's dungarees, shoes, and bathing trunks, all of which were soaking wet with seawater and covered with sand according to the FBI. They transported it all back to the Amagansett station, then onto the barge office in lower Manhattan. 
At that point, 11 hours after the initial encounter on the beach, the Coast Guard called the FBI to report a potential case of German sabotage. Now, there's a reason why I'm saying it that way. In other words, I'm giving you information that historically is accurate, but most Americans are not going to know for a long time. I mean, like 50, 60 years. And that is that most people's mentality about this entire occasion was that the FBI discovered the problem and intervened immediately. When in actuality, the FBI wasn't involved in this for 11 hours, and it was the Coast Guard that was handling the situation. There's a reason why no one has ever heard of John Cullen. It's because he was deleted from the storyline. Beverly Gage says, citing Roosevelt's 1939 order granting the FBI jurisdiction over sabotage and espionage, FBI officials seized the Coast Guard's evidence and transported it up to Foley Square, where it was laid out in the FBI shooting range to be sorted and tagged. Investigators would later determine that a German U-boat sent to deposit the saboteurs had run aground on a sandbar that night, stranded for several hours at low tide. The captain had gone so far as to order his men to prepare for blowing up the ship and turning themselves in as prisoners of war, when just before dawn, the tide came back in and allowed them to slip back beneath the ocean's surface. At first, Hoover did not believe certain details of the story. So remember our J. Edgar Hoover guy? So this is, and I have to clarify this, there's a lot of Hoovers back in this time period. We had a President Hoover, and this, that's a different guy, okay? Just in case you're wondering, it's like Hoover, Hoover, Hoover. There's a vacuum called a Hoover vacuum that was popular in this time. But this is uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. Very different, and actually far more powerful than all the other Hoovers, even though I know a Hoover vacuum has a lot of suction power. <laughs> So at first, Hoover did not believe certain details of the story. How it was possible that a German U-boat had been sitting in the Hamptons hour after hour and nobody, even in the supposedly vigilant Coast Guard, had managed to notice. He also expressed skepticism about the guardsman's initial description of the bribe and the threats, speculating that he might have been out to meet whiskey smugglers that night and reversed course, only after realizing he was talking with the wrong men. Hoover nonetheless believed that the sabotage plot was real, and he feared that the possibility of locating the men in question diminished with each passing moment. So I'm skipping a lot of the story, but the FBI is going to take over the case because Roosevelt has given them authority, jurisdiction, over all espionage-related cases. And so Hoover loves that. He, he wants to sort of build the reputation of the American espionage strength. And yet... He can't figure out what's going on in this situation. He has no more leads. All he has is this pile of buried stuff. And so they're planting watchmen out there to wait for uh, some of these uh, German spies to come back and get the materials, but no, nothing ever happens. And so it's not looking good. And the trail is going to go cold, which means they've lost any leads. They have no more uh, to follow up on. And so on June 19, 1942, Hoover was only steps away from total embarrassment. He hasn't actually been able to accomplish anything. Technically, up to this point, the Coast Guard has done everything. And he has not been able to bring anything to the table. So Beverly Gage says it this way, a phone call changed everything. On the morning of Friday, June 19, nearly a week after the initial encounter on the beach, an unidentified man called Hoover's office asking for the director, claiming that he had just arrived from Germany and had critical information to impart. Oh, how interesting. 
The man introduced himself as George Dash, also known as George John, John Davis, a German citizen who had lived in the United States for much of his adult life. Upon returning to Germany in 1941, he had been recruited for a special mission. The Nazis wanted him to go back to America in order to blow up aluminum factories, war plants, dams, bridges, and where possible, department stores owned by Jews. Isn't that an interesting thing that the Nazis are literally sending people to the United States to do this and to blow up department stores owned by Jews? What an interesting tactic, not just in their country, but in our country. Dash later claimed that he'd never intended to follow through on the sabotage plan but that he feared defying the Nazi authorities. So in late May, he had boarded a U-boat headed for Long Island. It was he who had run into John Cullen, the Coast Guard patrolman, on the early morning of June 13, just minutes after the U-boat had deposited him on the shore. So who is going to actually come to uh, J. Edgar Hoover, but the very guy that was on the beach that night? And so our George Dash character, is saying, I don't actually want to fulfill the plan that the Nazis sent me here to do, so I am here to expose the plan. So this guy is German, and he did go back to Germany, and obviously he's in cahoots with the Nazis at some level, and he's going to have their confidence to the point where he's going to lead this mission of eight uh, Germans to come to the United States to wreak havoc and to do terrorist activities. But for whatever reason, he's going to, in a sense, turn himself in. And he's going to say, here's the plot. I want to expose it. I don't want to work for the Nazis. The confession of George Dash is the turning point in the case. So there is a picture of George Dash uh, right there. Uh, I, I could say, you know, because all the, our pun-loving people would say a dashing uh, character. But I didn't say that. I just want you guys to know I didn't say that because I know, you know, I don't want to feed that uh, in the crowd. So their goal was to come, and on July 4th, on Independence Day, is when they were going to break open, and sort of as a statement, sort of, the Germans like irony. And so it's like, okay, Independence Day, we're gonna come in and blow up bridges, we're gonna blow up department stores on July 4th. And so that was the plan, and all of this is being uncovered because George Dash is coming to the FBI and giving all this information. So Beverly Gage says it this way, though he declined to meet with Dash, Hoover encouraged Trainer, who's another FBI agent, to make the would-be saboteur feel as if the FBI was on his side. Dash seemed to be a volatile character, and by catering to his more grandiose aspirations, Hoover hoped to turn him into a decoy, or perhaps even a double agent, to lure in other members of the sabotage team. Rather than keep Dash in custody, the FBI allowed him to return to his hotel room overnight with Trainer sleeping on the extra bed. Over the next several days, they gave Dash whatever he wanted, restaurant meals, ham salads, scotch, and soda. They provided a sympathetic ear for his claims that he was and had always been a loyal American, the buried explosive not, notwithstanding. In return, Dash gave up the details of the sabotage plot, naming all his co-conspirators, and even turning over a handkerchief inscribed with invisible ink instructions from the German government. Don't you love invisible ink instructions on handkerchiefs? That type of stuff is great. Dash's confession allowed the FBI to make quick work of his fellow Amagansett conspirators, snatching them up one after another. So all eight of these are going to be caught. 
Hoover kept a tight lid on the operation, fearing press coverage would inadvertently warn the saboteurs to run. The game of brinkmanship finally tipped his way on June 27, two weeks after the landing on Long Island, when a Florida saboteur led FBI agents to the last member of the team. At 6.45 that night, Chicago agents grabbed the eighth man and called the arrest into headquarters. Hoover prepared to tell the story to the world. Hoover, uh, you know, with all, he has, he has some strengths, and I don't want to decry him of his strengths. However, he also was somewhat of a braggart, and he really liked to get credit for everything. Now, if you remember one of my previous episodes, I was talking about a character named Melvin Purvis, who was ranked as the second most uh, influential or popular American behind Roosevelt in like 1934, I think it was. And you have to realize that that man worked under Hoover. And so Hoover is ultimately going to get rid of Melvin Purvis. And you can sort of feel, if you study the history of Hoover, you can sort of feel his yearning to be important. And it's sort of tough for me to study and to read because I want to like the man, but it's really hard when someone is elbowing other people out of the way to sort of get into the limelight. It's like the limelight is over here. It's like, all right, here I am. And that's the way I feel in so many of these stories as, I, as I've studied them. So Hoover prepared to tell the story to the world. Here's a picture of the eight uh, German spies that are all caught. And on the outside, you see, you need to realize that Hoover in this moment, no one in America knows of the threat, nor of the fact that all eight have been found. Now, should we acknowledge that the FBI has done a fairly good job of using the information the Coast Guard gave and using the confessions of George Dash? I'd say so. I think they did a great job. However, to acknowledge the Coast Guard and to acknowledge that George Dash is the one that helped them do it all would diminish the FBI's credibility because it wouldn't look like the FBI did much. And so those two details are going to be deleted. At 8.30, as planned, an unsmiling Hoover welcomed eight reporters into a drab conference room. Once inside, they were not allowed to leave until Hoover had completed his statement. I want you to listen carefully, he explained. This is serious business. Then he launched into the whole incredible tale describing the landings at Amagansett at, and Ponte Vedra. There was two groups, four that went one place and four that went another. The discovery of the buried weapons, caches, the FBI's high-stakes manhunt, and just hours earlier, the final arrests. So deliberate deletions in order to take credit for someone else's labors. Now I've tried to think through, I've been trying to personalize this message ever since I started doing it. I, I don't know that my default is to state claim to try and take credit for things that other people do, but it is an interesting propensity that we all have as humans. Maybe some people have it more than others, depending on their insecurity levels. But it is fascinating to think about how we can retell a story in a manner that favors our own reputation and maybe does not favor someone else's. I mean, the subtleties of how we can play everything we say. So Beverly Gage says it this way, he did not mention the Coast Guard's role in uncovering the initial plot, nor did he explain how George Dash had come to the FBI with a full confession. As Hoover told it, FBI ingenuity, efficiency, and scientific prowess alone accounted for the saboteur's capture. So I could have easily, I, I actually had a list of different ways that I could tell this story. Because I had this story mapped out in my outline 
for, you know, for months. It's been there, just sort of sitting there. It's, it was called the German spy ring. That's what it was called. And I had all these different options. And the option I've chosen is a very odd way of telling this story, I have to admit. But it's deeply impacted me, and I hope it deeply impacts you. Beverly Gage says this, reporters competed to describe the saboteurs and their huge terror plot in the most satanic of terms. Hoover, by contrast, came in for levels of praise exceeding even the most awestruck accounts of the G-Man craze, with the saboteurs' arrests identified as the domestic news sensation of the year. Hoover is going to explode in popularity. And he's only going to grow in legend more and more over the next decade to the point where literally he is possibly the most famous American in the 1950s. And yet most of it, you can see the soil of it right here, where he is going to make a deliberate decision to take what looks like the biggest victory for America. Remember, America... We, we've been weak. We've been in the Great Depression. We haven't felt strong. We were bombed at Pearl Harbor. We want to sort of get our game on. We feel vulnerable. Do you know that we were afraid of Japanese invasion on the West Coast? People would turn out their lights at night so that the Japanese would not see them. We were literally that afraid. We felt weakened as a nation. And then this happens. When this happens, there is a strength in our nation where you, that's why they want to give Hoover a medal. It's like, see, we can answer your attacks. We have something to say as Americans. This is a, an American thing. And we're feeling it, we're welling up, and Hoover takes it all. And that's the danger and the subtlety of this that I want to draw out. Why expose this breakthrough? That was one of the big questions. It's like, Hoover, uh, Tactically speaking, in the world of espionage, you don't want to give up the fact that you know what the enemy is doing. Because then the enemy knows that you know what they're doing, so they do something different. And that's how spycraft works, is you, if you get a code book, you don't tell the enemy you have their code book. You let them continue to send the code, and you decrypt the code so you know what the enemy's thinking, and you don't want the enemy to know what they're thinking. You don't want the enemy to know that you know what they're thinking. Boy, this is, it's hard. It's hard to say things like this. Spycraft is a tough business. So why expose this? Why announce that you've caught all eight of them? So after all, wouldn't it be better to not let the Germans know that their spies were caught? And that's a, it's a great question. But Hoover is going to make a tactical decision. So J. Edgar Hoover gave his reason. So do you guys want to know the reason that J. Edgar Hoover is going to expose this? It was to convince Hitler, like the American public, that the FBI had unimaginable and unassailable powers of detection. The FBI is almost like God, and we can see what the enemy is doing. You see, Hoover wanted Hitler to be afraid of the FBI. The FBI legend was growing in this time. Remember, we caught... In 1934, we got John Dillinger, we got Pretty Boy Floyd, we got Babyface Nelson, we got Bonnie and Clyde. No varmints in this nation are gonna stand because the FBI is in control around here. And now we caught the German spy ring. Even the internationals that try and come in and touch these borders, the FBI is on it. This is Hoover's motivation. He wants to create a reputation that scares his enemies. Now that the FBI had nabbed the saboteurs, what should be done with them? Americans want death for the saboteurs, death for the saboteurs. Now these saboteurs, ironically, didn't accomplish anything. 
All they did was bury their stuff on the beach and then get caught. Basically, that's what ended up happening because George Dash, their leader, is going to confess everything. However, no one knows that. And so the Americans want death for the saboteurs. Even though they accomplished nothing, in the American mindset, it was a satanic plot that would have succeeded if J. Edgar Hoover hadn't sniffed it out. And so Americans want death for the saboteurs, but that would be a miscarriage of the normal judicial practice American citizens enjoy. The reason is, is because there's a due process that we give to our uh, citizens. And two of these Germans are American citizens, which confuses this a little. In the time of war, you can have war tribunals and you can try someone in a different way, which is based on a different criteria. But we have two American citizens in the mix, even though they did go over to Nazi Germany and they were invading our country, even at their own confession. However, they didn't succeed in doing one thing. They didn't harm anything. They didn't blow up a bridge. They didn't blow up a department store. They failed. And so with the evidentiary demands of a civil court system, we have nothing to convict them over. And so there's going to be a tactical decision, and that is Roosevelt chooses to use a military tribunal instead of the civil courts. And to bypass due process and to avoid the high demand for evidentiary support required for conviction. And that's where we come to room 5235. This is going to be a military tribunal that is going to take place in that room, and it is going to bring down a death sentence on these men. So room 5235, it's cloaked in secrecy. Not one member of the press was allowed in. And so therefore, what is going to be stated out of this room is going to be controlled. And guess who controls it? Hoover. And so what is going to be declared, and this is going to be, this is a tough one to know how to evaluate in history because you see George Dash, and George Dash is pleading with the Attorney General Biddle and with uh, Hoover to remember what he has done for them. It's like, excuse me, but remember, I came and I confessed this uh, to you. And so Hoover is assuring him that you know, we will remember that. And, but as it's moving forward, it's becoming harder and harder uh, to be able to protect George Dash because Hoover can't acknowledge that George Dash did all this to preserve the image of the FBI. So in the long run, if I was going to just cut to the chase, six of them will receive the death penalty and will be electrocuted. One of them will be sentenced to life in prison and George Dash will get 30 years in prison. And so he is going to not do anything but show up on the shores and then come to Hoover and confess and give the whole thing up and he will get 30 years in prison, which I'm not going to say he wasn't a part of a German spy ring with the intention of destroying our country. That's a hard one. And it's hard to ever weigh in on a justice system because it's not my business. It's not my decision. Uh, and yet the fact that no one knew that he had done what he did is part of the challenge. So this is his, uh, Edgar Hoover's uh, public statement about the proceedings. The authorities want to have this trial over and the prisoners executed by the end of next week. J. Edgar Hoover is going to become an American hero in this uh, time. In foiling this diabolical scheme, the agents of the FBI have again proven more than a match for Hitler's trained hirelings in the field of counter-espionage. A nice uh, public statement from J. Edgar Hoover there. 
Beverly Gage says, as far as Hoover was concerned, the FBI and the FBI alone had made the case from start to finish. So this is what I read in the beginning. Remember how I started out with this foreshadow three quarters of the way in, and then now I'm going to read it again, because this is the context for room 5235. It's in secrecy. So everything that we don't want the press to know, we can make the judgments here. We can give the slant and the perspective that we need and then give the press whatever they need to hear after that. Outside room 5235's doors, Washington was abuzz with talk of a medal for Hoover while the media rushed ahead to declare him a great hero on par with General, General Douglas MacArthur, commander of allied forces in the South Pacific. Hats off enthusiastically to the FBI, one writer declared. What a splendid job J. Edgar Hoover's excellent counterespionage organization is doing. Another instructed his fellow citizens to thank God for the miraculous capacities of John Edgar Hoover and his FBI army. J. Edgar Hoover did a great job. However, he didn't do a great job in acknowledging how he did a great job. And I think there's a propensity in all of us to fail to remember John Cullen and the Coast Guard and to fail to remember George Dash, that without George Dash, you have a trail that's gone cold and you're going to be a fool in the eyes of the public because you have nothing. You owe you great FBI that sees all. If it's not for George Dash, you don't have a trail to follow. These eight can't even be found. So what about John Cullen and the Coast Guard? Beverly Gage says it this way, Hoover labeled the Coast Guard both incompetent and deceitful, out to steal credit for the FBI's investigative success. He complained that the Coast Guard did nothing in this case except to obstruct and interfere with its proper development. What about George Dash? So this is a statement, uh, well, I'll just read it and you guys can interpret. Dash later said, that he viewed Hoover's actions during those final moments as an unconscionable form of betrayal. In the closing days of the commission hearings, he allegedly ran into Hoover in the corridor outside room 5235 and demanded an audience. Please, Mr. Hoover, just one more question. According to Dash, his plea was met with a slap from a nearby FBI agent, at which point he crumpled to the ground in pain and despair. FBI files tell a more subdued and more plausible version of the encounter in which Dash asked to meet with Hoover but was turned away. All agreed that Hoover refused to speak with Dash, turning his back on the man who had helped to make the FBI's greatest wartime case. I saw the chief disappear down the hall, seemingly surrounded by an impregnable wall of justice and strength, Dash later wrote. Credit. What an interesting word. It's not a word, you think of it more as a financial word, but it is, it is a word we use, like to give credit for something. But it's not a word we think about very often. It's that strange concept that we all intuitively understand. When someone accomplishes something, then they receive the credit for accomplishing that. And it's like a place in line. It's like a form of property. When something good is done, then that property or that credit belongs to someone. And so when that is taken from someone and given to someone else, it's like a form of theft. But it's a strange form of theft. To steal credit is like a, an odd statement. You can steal credit? Well, just like you can cut in line. It's like when someone is in line, it's a form of property. It's like, this is my space. I've earned this space by standing here a long time. And if someone cuts in line, it's like they're stealing your property. That's not theirs. Now, you can be gracious as a Christian and say, you know what, absolutely. Just, yeah, I would love to give you that spot in line. That doesn't make it right. And so it is still something that is a matter of honor and integrity and honesty and truth. 
And so when you see it stolen or you see it not uh, respected, it does have a unique impact on us. So I'm going to tell a story in the Old Testament. Not, not telling, I'm reading a story from the Old Testament. And it's not a story that most people would expect to just come up in a context like this, but it's a very unique application of it. So 2 Kings 5, 1 through 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, who was the king of Syria, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. So Naaman, this great military commander, has a wife, and he's a leper, and there is going to be a hostage or you know, someone who is abducted from Israel in all of these wars of the Syrians, and she is going to, this Israelite girl is going to become a servant in Naaman's household. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master with, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. You guys know who that prophet is? That's Elisha. For he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. By the way, that is like a small fortune that he's bringing with him. That's how valuable this man is in Syria. So to see this man healed of leprosy, this great commander of the Syrian forces, is worth a lot to the king of Syria. This is such a funny story because the king of Syria is going to write a letter to the king of Israel saying, can you heal Naaman? And the king of Israel is going to be like, uh, what does he think I can do? I mean, he thinks I can heal someone? And so the king of Israel is just like, thinks that the king of Syria is up to something. It's like, what's he up to? Meanwhile, Elisha is going to overhear that the king of uh, Israel received a note, so he's going to say, yeah, come to me. It's like, why is, it, why is the note going to the king of Israel anyways? But Naaman has a fortune with him. He is willing to, if he could be healed of leprosy, give a fortune in response. So I'm skipping a lot of the story. Go down to a river, dip in it seven times. And Naaman is going to walk away going, you've got to be kidding. I, the waters in Damascus are cleaner than the waters here in Israel. I'm not about to wash in one of these, you know, muddy streams. And so then his servant comes up and says, you know what, I, I think you probably should do it. And so Naaman does it, is healed. And so then he's like blown away. He's like, whoa, I'm actually healed. And so what a wonder, what an accomplishment. And he returned to the man of God. This is in verses 15 through 16. And so Naaman returned to the man of God, and he and all his aides, and came and stood before Elisha. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. So this is an interesting moment. I don't know that this is um, prescriptive in the sense that if you ever do something for someone and they offer you a gift that you should never receive it. I don't think it's prescriptive for that. However, it is an incredible descriptive statement of something that took place in history of a man. Elisha knows that it's not him that heals. And so the credit is actually God's credit. And he refuses to receive the credit for something that he didn't actually do. It's God that healed him. So that's not stated in the story, but it is described indirectly here, especially with how the rest of the story plays out. So room 5235, when a room is sealed, 
we think differently. And that's why secret sin is a vulnerability to all of us. When you sense that no one is looking, you are baited to behave differently than you would behave if others are looking. And the same is true when this room seals, 5235 seals, Hoover hatches plans. Because the testimony of the people in the room, if America was listening in, you know, it was all broadcast, well then they would hear the Coast Guard speak. They would hear Dash testify. But it's sealed, and when it's sealed, it gives you this sense of allowance and freedom to maybe violate things that you wouldn't otherwise, because no one will actually know. Now, that's a dangerous conclusion to ever come to. No one will ever know. Uh, and that is, of course, you know, famous last words, uh, usually for the soul. Room 5235 is sealed. This is Gehazi's moment. Now, you haven't met Gehazi, but Gehazi is one of those characters that has been in your Christian life. You just didn't even know it. You like, remember when the Syrian army is going to come to you know, get Elisha, and it says that Elisha's servant is going to say, uh, you know, alas, master, uh, you know, what, what should we do? Well, that was Gehazi right there. And so he has a name, and his name is Gehazi, and he is He's a, you know, we're, we're liking Gehazi, and he seems to be a very helpful character to Elisha. But then, if you know the full story of Gehazi, you don't know if you should like him or not. It's sort of like a Hoover story, too. It's like, I'm not exactly sure if I should cheer this guy on. Because when the room seals, and he thinks no one is looking, he is going to go after Naaman. 2 Kings 5, 20 through 24. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from, receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, all is well, my master. My master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, please, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed." Guys, you know, just because room 5235 is sealed does not mean it's sealed from God. And so Naaman or Gehazi is taking something that does not rightfully belong to him under the guise of deception. And he wants it. It's sort of like Judas. Judas fell for the same thing. It's like there's a purse and he feels like, you know, that spike nard that's being poured out should go into the purse. Why? So he could have it. It's not just so that the ministry could succeed. There's those subtleties in our motives that God needs to address. So question, but is room 5235 sealed from God? Any of those moments in our life where we feel that it's sealed, we feel like the press coverage is not going to be there, no one will ever know, these are the moments that define us. This is actually what most people would say is the measurement of your character. Your character is not measured when the door is open. It's measured when the door is shut and when you have to make a choice of how you live in the shut or the sealed portions of your life, or is it going to be consistent with how you live when everyone is looking in? Our desire as believers is to be consistent through and through so that whether anyone is looking or not, if they happen to sneak a peek inside a sealed room, what are they going to find? The same person. 
they're going to see the behavior of Jesus Christ. Now, that is Christianity. That's the way we are supposed to be. 2 Kings 5, 20 through 24. Now Gehazi went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, uh, your servant, it doesn't say, uh, by the way, uh, in there. I added that uh, for dramatic effect. Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous, as white as snow. Okay, that's a pretty uh, intense storyline right there. And yet what it shows is someone grasping and reaching for something that is not their own under the banner of deception. It's a taking of credit. When the room is sealed, they feel they can get away with something that if the room was open, 5235 was not open, if, if it was not sealed, that it was open, he would have never done this. So when Naaman opens up his purse and wants to praise our healing labors, do we stake claim to the credit or will we give the credit to the one who truly deserves it? So this is the exercise in my soul that I want to invite you guys into as well. Your life has strength. I mean, if you're even in this room right now at an alumni summit, you've been given a lot in your life. But it's not just because you rose up one day and said, I'm going to live for Jesus. Oh, that did happen, I'm sure, along the journey. But why? And what are the contributing factors? And it's easy for us to, in a sense, close off a certain portion of our life, especially if part of that life has some pains and some hurt with it. Like, for instance, you can sometimes ignore the fact that your parents had a huge investment into your life because you've also been hurt by your parents. And so you can start to explain your life differently. Oh, John Cullen didn't discover them on the beach. Oh, yeah, the Coast Guard had nothing to do with this. All they've done is trip me up my entire life. Instead of recognizing that they were a huge influence to establish you in who you are. Yes, they didn't do it perfectly. I'm sure the Coast Guard didn't do it perfectly either. George Dash was a rather honorary guy. So yeah, I can understand why we'd want to delete him from the storyline. He's not a very pleasant character. And if the press ever talked with him, it's not going to go over very well. However, there's still players in the storyline of what made you successful in your life, what has brought you to this place where you're seeing clearly and you're able with strength of heaven to be able to turn outward and bless the world around you. A strong Christian is a product of thousands that have invested into them. And yet very rarely do we remember the thousands. In fact, it, it's, it's an exercise that many of us maybe don't even take very often. Is like, can you even remember five? And maybe we could. Can you remember 10 of those thousands? Can you remember 100 of those thousands? It's actually, it takes a great deal of effort, especially if you haven't been cultivating that at any level. Was there a John Cullen and a George Dash in your story that have strangely been deleted from the storyline? For, for various reasons, I'm sure we have good justifications, but sometimes it's just that we desire to have credit. We desire people, maybe it's because we haven't had a lot of credit and we haven't had a lot of encouragement in our life, but we'd like to think that we're something special. You know, that we did a great work. Could you notice it, people? Could you actually acknowledge, look, I've done something great. Please tell me that. You know, it didn't go over well for Herod when he did that, by the way. 
And it doesn't go over well for our souls either. And I'm going to say there is not one of us in here that is esteeming Hoover more highly as a result of this message. Because part of us is like, that's despicable. And we are correct. And you have to recognize that God thinks the same thing. That he desires us to recognize and to be thankful and grateful for the heritage, the foundation, the benefactors to each of our lives. So giving credit where credit is due, famous statement, right? It's a deliberate choice within our soul. It's an exercise of our soul. The practice of thankfulness, it keeps the doors of room 5235 open. So I don't know that I can, it's an interesting statement. If you said, Eric, are you great at uh, thank you notes? Well, not really. Uh, I, I don't know if that's one of my strengths. Thank you notes, anything I have to put a stamp on and send is literally one of the hardest things I could do in life. Uh, and once I lost Sandy, I almost just you know, fell to pieces on that front. It's like I have a letter, but I have no idea. How do I get this in the mail? Because it's like, where do I find the address? Have you ever gotten something where you don't even get it? I get a lot of these where I get anonymous things too. It's like someone gives me something that says, you know, Jim as the return address. Uh, well, what am I supposed to do? Thank you, Jim. Uh, whoever you are, you know, that type of a thing. And that's actually a beautiful thing from Jim. That's what's interesting. It's a beautiful thing that God is exercising inside of Jim, but I don't always know how to respond to it in a way that truly shows honor back to Jim. It's a, a unique tensions in my life as Eric Ludi. But at the same time, I do have dimensions in my life where I would say I have deliberately chosen to be thankful and to express it. So here's, here's one of the ways. If I ever watch a movie that is usually gonna be a Christian movie of some kind that I feel is speaking to my soul and, and exhorting me and encourage me, I will go out of my way, whether it's an email or a letter, and I will write it, sometimes a phone call, and express it in great detail. If I ever write, read a book that has impacted me, I will give a response back in great detail of the things that I noticed in it. Well, why would I do that? Well, partly because of my makeup of what I do, and I know how lonely it can feel as a communicator because you get, you get encouragement, but you also get criticism, a lot of it. And so I want to go out of my way to speak the language of that person at a deep level. And so I will show appreciation and acknowledge this book impacted my life. Very rarely do high impact people encourage high impact people because they tend to look at them as a threat. It's like, oh, that's my territory. That's my audience they're after. And that's an unhealthy way. That's sealing off room 5235. As opposed to recognize that person just impacted my life. But if I encourage them, maybe I'm going to cause my audience to go after them. Oh, I shouldn't say anything. It's a very odd way that we as humans function. So the practice of thankfulness. So I'm going to call these contributors. Now there's a lot of names, benefactors, helpers, servants. We could come up with any name. I just picked a name. So your personal list of life benefactors. I'm going to encourage you to actually spend time and create a list of people that have invested into your life. And that's what I've done over the last 24 hours. And it's actually been extremely challenging because I have this fear that I'm forgetting major groups of people because the deeper I go, I mean, I was laying in bed last night. I actually got up at least once and went to my computer and was typing in more because it, there's such a vast throng of people that have made me who I am. 
At first, you may not think it's that big of a number until you start pondering it at a deeper level. Thanksgiving, honor, praise, and dependency. There's just four. I'm just naming four things. Thanksgiving, honor, praise, and dependency. All of these virtuous actions grow out of the root of deep appreciation for our contributors. So, for instance, the contribution of God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, all these things, that thankfulness and that gratefulness, like, I could not do what I'm doing without God's investment in my life. I mean, of course, that should be a no-brainer in our Christianity, but unfortunately, we even have to remember that. But that also goes with our parents. It goes with our family members. It goes with our friends. It goes with this infrastructure of support that God has put, us, put around us that honor, to honor that person, to praise, uh, and to speak words of exhortation, this is all part of that cultivation that comes with recognizing uh, with a deep appreciation our contributors. So my list of contributors, I'm actually gonna walk you through a list of my contributors. I'm actually going to do that, even though I know I'm going to leave out uh, way too many. We call it, you know, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Uh, that's sort of the way it is for me. It's like, okay, I got a huge one here. And we're going to plant about a thousand uh, people in that one. So disclaimer, in my list, I am actually going to exclude the most obvious. And I'm going to say I'm excluding the obvious ones that I herald day in and day out, i.e. Jesus. Okay, I, hopefully you know that I know that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing, right? And all my many heroes of the faith, I mean, I could list just heroes of the faith and spend you know, the next 20 minutes just going through names that have greatly impacted my life, men and women I've never met. And I'm also not going to mention uh, you know, my family, uh, my parents, Leslie's parents, my immediate family on both sides, for instance, Leslie, uh, my children, Leslie's brothers, uh, the sisters-in-law, whatever, all the family type of thing that's in an immediate sector, I'm not gonna do, okay, that's the rules for me because in my mind, that's sort of, okay, I'm gonna treat that as the obvious for now and I'm going to go a level deeper to the part where maybe I don't say it enough. So I'm gonna give up the secrets of my room 5235. Isn't that a cool way of saying it? Instead of trying to act like I am all that, that's, oh look, I'm, I'm a self-made guy. No, I'm actually, I'm a product of the work of grace in my life. And apart from this grace, which has been expressed to me, yes, through God and his word and his Holy Spirit, but also through the body of Christ around me, I am who I am. So this is an odd list. And some, some of these people I haven't talked to since I was a little kid. Terry Ball, for instance. I, I, I don't think I've talked with him since I was five. And yet uh, he was a very tall man. Uh, you were my first picture of a mighty man. Though you are extremely tall, you stooped low to personally get to know me. Lois Taylor, as my first grade teacher, you showed a special interest in my success and made me think I mattered. Tim Cohen, Tim Cohen was like two years older than me in school. And you know, when you're in elementary school, th that's, that's a lot. Uh, when I was injured in the first grade, you held an ice pack to my head and spent the day ensuring me that I was okay. You were my first hero. Peter Trost, you sought me out, you knew my name, and you cared about my soul. Bob Barr Sr., you inspired me to aim higher, to think bigger, and I did because of you. I still remember on my back uh, patio in Gun Barrel, Colorado, before college, uh, I was headed off to college, I said, so what are you going to study? I, go, well, I was thinking like sports medicine, maybe you'd be a physical therapist or uh, something like that. He goes, why not be a doctor? I go, I'm not smart enough for that. He goes, who told you that? 
I, I don't know, I just think it might be too hard for me. He goes, if you wanna be a doctor, Eric, you can be a doctor. It was, it's actually a change point in my life and I went to school to study pre-med and I was getting straight A's. And I kept reflecting back on that. It's like, yeah, who told me that? It was a very interesting defining moment in my life. Melody Green, you wrote the book that changed my life. No compromise, the life story of Keith Green. Dick Anderson, you believed that I was created to impact the world and you told me so time and again. Wick Neese, you introduced me to the heart, Father Heart of God and showed me the sort of givenness to Jesus that I craved. Dean and Debbie Lundberg, you treated my radical longings as normal and cheered me onward. Brian and Karen Allison, you invested into my first year of marriage and personally financed the publishing of our first book. John and Pat Hinkle, you gave Leslie and I a vision for a marriage that can get better with time. First time in my life I ever heard someone say, you know, oh, you, yeah, marriage can get better with time. You just need to switch. You're no longer trying to win a heart. Now you're cherishing a heart. Just do it right and it will always get sweeter, always better, like the, wet, wet the wine at Cana. Ed and Sue Liebenthal, you loved Leslie and I and practically cheered us forward into ministry. Dave and Debbie Kemp, you tirelessly prayed for Leslie and I even before we were married. Chris and Jan Watkins, you invested into a young Eric and Leslie, showing us the preciousness of living in purity. Doug and Perry Staples, you made Leslie and I feel like the most special people on earth and were a key part of multiple miracle provisions in our first year of marriage. Dr. Scott Martin, you made me laugh while you were training me to sing. You gave me your best stuff and taught me to do the same. Marlene Bagnell, you invested into our writing career, editing our first book and introducing us to everyone you knew. Stacy, you are the anonymous donor that selflessly gave financially to me when I was a young missionary and your gift was the boost that carried me into a lifestyle of radical dependency on God. Don Hawley, you not only prayed every day for our ministry, but were the one to place our first manuscript on the desk of our first publisher with a note that read, you need to read this. Matt Jacobson, you were the publisher that caught the vision for changing the world through our books. Brent and Carrie Cooper, you were the young couple that was willing to sell all, go anywhere, and do anything to serve us when we desperately needed that support. Annie Weshi, you are the young woman that possibly has invested more into our ministry and family than anyone else. Our lives, our ministry, and our family have your indelible mark of loving devotion upon them. Dan and Sandy McConaughey, you are the couple that has served alongside us, suffered alongside us, been accused alongside us, and loved us even when we weren't very lovely. Two of our very dearest friends in the world. Grace McConaughey, you are possibly the greatest example of rejoicing in suffering I have ever seen. Gary Ringer, you are the man who gave the financial gift that launched Ellerslie. Nathan Johnson, you are a dear friend that, who has suffered greatly to ease the burdens on my life. Possibly the clearest picture of Christ I've ever seen up close. Mandy Saylor, you have been a true gift to our family over the years with such intimate care for each of our children. Mike and Krista Hahn, you are the couple that has walked this all alongside us, encouraging us with words of life at every turn, beloved friends in the battles of ministry. Harda Artsma, Reese and Lily, they are here in our home because of you. You suffered greatly to serve our family. Philip and Emily Hartman, you both are faithful as the sun is to rise, solid as a rock with the cutest kids ever. Ben Price, Steve Altmeyer, Stan Fair, John Elkins, Kevin Bourne, and Nate Mockler, you are all men that have drawn your swords for me time and time and time again. Philip Telfer, you selflessly handed me the microphone and supplied me with dear friendships I likely never would have had otherwise. You also lent me your shirt, tie, and suit coat and saved me from being shamed. Jonathan Schutz, you were in on that too. 
Bo Matsit, Steve Osborne, Bob Gazaway, Elijah Robertson, Ben Zorns, Judah Kofer, Steve Rosen, Walter Willis, Dwight Schubert, Ken Windebank, Dave Wolf, Mark Sharman, and Matt Powell. You are all men that have held up my arms in the battle and helped me walk through ministry minefields and bravely endure the pangs of frontline service. Aaron Vogel, Ryan Gold, Charles Sepio, Kel Muckeroy, and Bob Barr Jr. You're all dear friends whose names are some of the most cherished in my heart and in my affections. You all have cheered me on, encouraged me forward, and have stood loyal and true over the years. The Stump family, Janae and Donna Brazil, Andrew and Hannah Bartlett, you all helped Hudson and I write a book. Rich and Mindy Garnot, you and your team invested into my children and unlocked their creative talents. Don and Peggy Douglas, you have loved my kids as if they were your own grandkids. The Coleman family, you have been in the front row of the Ellerslie cheering section from near the beginning. Josh Kinnebrew, you have been on call for nearly 14 years. Whenever I face a technical challenge, you have been happy to drop everything and help me. John Clay Burnett and James Flood, you built our studio from which hundreds of thousands have been blessed. Lucy Weaver, you have labored under the stage to support our family and to daily wash our feet. Oh, and by the way, happy birthday. Jessica and pa Pamela Mullen, you both have been a constant drip of heavenly encouragement in my soul. Sam Eversall, Nick Mockler, Joseph Mockler, Ryan Priest, Donna Weaver, Sarah Mockler, Mallory and Jenny Rast, men and women that have each spent multiple years washing my feet and the feet of the team around me here at Ellerslie. The horde of helpers that have overhauled this campus these past few years, Evan, Andrew, Samuel M, Sam Esch, Jonathan, James, Jess, Rebecca, Laura, Bob, Nathan, Jesse, Caleb, Chad, Mary, Tim, Daniel, Don, Kenny, Abby, Tim, Lindsay, Russell, Susan, Stephen, Anna, Anna, Morgan, and a hundred more unnamed but no less appreciated. You have invested into my life and ministry in a way that makes the words thank you sound far too small. Aaron Burns, you have rejoiced with me in victory, wept with me in agony, shared many an adventure at my side, and walked this narrow way with me as a true friend. Terry and Don Voskel, you have been a booing gift of dear friendship and practical help in the darkest hour. Your love and grace has been like a fresh rain in my soul. And the multitude of unnamed contributors, you are a crowd of tens of thousands. Your words of encouragement, your notes of appreciation, your examples of Christ's love, your tender mercies, your selfless acts of service, your books written, your movies produced, your sermons delivered, your art created, your life lived for the glory of Jesus. You have played a huge role in making me who I am today. So guys, I want each of us to do that. I think there's something about opening up room 5235 and not doing what Hoover did, not putting a spin on it to make ourselves look better, but to actually share that gratitude with everyone around us. And I, to tell you the truth, I'm actually shocked at how many people there are. I mean, I'm, I hardly mentioned even an Ellerslie student in that list, and we have well over 4,000 of them. And the amount of people that have impacted my life in small ways is like, at what point do you draw a line and say, well, that isn't a big enough one to make it onto my list. And I was struggling with that as I was going through this. At what point? Because every single one of you in this room, just in your simple ways, has blessed my life. And we need each other. And I think there's something about open up, opening up this room that otherwise we can begin to think that Either we are left out, lost, because we forget the amount of love that people have for us, or that we think we're all that and that we're the ones that succeeded in something. I remember when Leslie was really struggling financially, I, I, there were many voices that were coming like, Eric, you know, are you sure you're doing this right? You know, what are you doing? And everyone was questioning my leadership. And then 
I did nothing different other than trust God, nothing. And then Ellerslie turned and started, you know, actually doing well and financially was more stable. And suddenly the same people are like, Eric, I'm just really impressed with your leadership. Okay, guys, I did nothing. All I've done this entire time, whether it's living in plenty or in want, is to trust my God. My God gets the credit for anything that happens here in, at Ellerslie, and I think probably you guys all know that anyways. It's not a work of Eric and Leslie. It's not a work of Nathan and Philip. It's not a work of Don Voskel. It is not a work of any of the team we've had in the past. It is, but it isn't. It's like Hoover was a part of that great story. But what robs from the story is that he claimed all the credit instead of sharing it with the, the true story. The true story is actually the one God can bless. And that is that we as a company of heroes are working together to change the world in which we live. And it's a company of heroes that builds something like Ellerslie. It's not an individual. And so lest we actually conclude that it is, we need messages like this. Father, thank you. Thank you for your care over us and for your constancy. Lord, I pray that each of us would open up those room doors afresh and remember the great throng of saints that have invested into us. Even the people that don't even know Jesus that have invested into us with the best they knew. Lord, we thank you for how you have given to each of us. And we love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.